Well, that's right. When you hear the sound like that, it's Brooklyn Paper Radio recording live and on tape and on iPod and tunes and all that kind of stuff from the Brooklyn Paper Building in downtown Brooklyn. That's America's downtown. It certainly is, Gersh. I, of course, am Gersh Kuntzman of the New York Daily News and editor emeritus of these Brooklyn Papers, joined by a very handsome man to my right, Vince DiMasselli, editor of the Brooklyn Paper, and as I said, handsome despite my devout heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. And I start every show the same way. I say, Vince, what a phenomenal show we have today. But today I mean it. You seem a little nervous, Gersh. I'm a little nervous because we are joined by future Pulitzer Prize and Nobel Prize winner Jonathan Safran Foer, the Brooklyn novelist and author of the new book, Here I Am, a legend of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who, who can say hello if he wishes? Hello if he wishes. There he is. Nice. And we will also have a phone call from the mayor of Coney Island, Dick Ziggin. Who's oh, going to yeah. talk to us a little bit about Coney Island's plans to secede, I believe, from the, the Union. From the Union, Gersh. Really, the not union. from New York State? Not from the just union? the state, not just the city. Not trying to do that Staten Island thing from the 90s. Hmm. Not doing that. So by any standards, that is a great show. Foer, Ziggin, Demaselli, mm-hmm. Kunzman. But I start the way I always do. About three bad words in that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Foer, Demaselli, Kunzman. But as I said, I would be remiss if I didn't look over to my side. And see Demaselli sitting there and say, Demaselli, happy birthday. Oh, thank How you. How was your weekend? Oh, it was the birthday weekend, Gersh. It was the greatest weekend ever. Really? We had a party at the house. You know, my wife throws great parties. No we'll question about it. She, yeah. she, there's not even a small detail ever left that is unnoticed by your wife. Yes, you can look at all the photos that we put up on our personalized uh, Apple photo stream. Oh, so I guess you can't. Can but you give me the URL? Jimmy, can you put the G- URL up for that? That's great stuff. And uh, she put together, a, it was a mad scientist party. So we had lots of crazy mad scientist stuff. She even got me a mad scientist coat. And the pockets in the mad scientist coat, you may not know this, you can reach through the pockets mm. and into your own pockets. Wow. It's pretty mad. Yeah. Did it have a little monogram? Did it say like VDM or whatever? It said Dr. Demaselli. Dr. Demaselli. Yes, Dr. Demaselli. Oh, I had level 10 access. I had a lanyard. That's a real... She made lanyards, Gersh. A lot of details there. No, it's great stuff. And of course, you capped off the weekend with the Super Bowl. I know you were a fan of Lady Gaga. Oh, yeah. I enjoyed I enjoyed the uh, the Lady Gaga show. A lot of people didn't, I hear. Yeah, I understand. Forward did not like Lady Gaga. What's the problem with Lady Gaga, Forward? Oh, I just thought it was misery. Misery. Was absolute cool. misery. Misery. Yeah. Well, it, it was... Um, well, first of all, I thought she was going to be political, mm. which it seemed like the occasion called for and might have been, I don't know, appropriate or even fun. And I felt like um, if I were to have done an imitation of Lady Gaga doing a Super Bowl performance, hmm. it would have been almost indistinguishable from what she actually did. You're, you're actually in better shape than she is. We're in about the same shape. But it's funny you expected the No Fun League, the NFL, to actually let her be political. Not going to happen. Well, how can they stop her once it's you know it's rolling, it's live? Yeah, She's on. It, it was all so pre-programmed. They, they couldn't stop Kanye. Couldn't. Well, nobody can stop Kanye. No, nobody. Did you ever try to stop Kanye, Fower? <laughs> Only once. It didn't go well at didn't all. Didn't go well at all. <laughs> I don't anyway, recommend it. So as I said, that's Jonathan Safran Fower, who's going to be in in a couple of minutes. Well, she's, he's in right now. Yeah. You, you can ask him anything at 718-260-4502. That is our live phone line. And I want Jonathan and obviously Vince to know, no one's ever used that phone line. No, we got a call once from my dad. We, oh, yeah. That was, and he was faking it. Yeah, he faked it. Anyway. Makes me all the more excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, there's no question, Jonathan, that when people hear the sound of your voice, they're going to say, wait a minute, i got to pick up the phone and call that guy, Jonathan Zephyr, because I love his books, and I love his nonfiction. I love his fiction. Let me ask but, him a question. But, but, they, but they have to be listening in the first place. Well, there's thousands of people listening right now. They're Jimmy, right Jimmy, right can now. you put up the number of people who are listening right now? 
They're they see, 700 right there now. So that's pretty good. Anyway, I would be remiss if I didn't start the show with a pre-written NPR-style introduction of my next guest. Yeah, and it, it seems like I have interu- interruptions yeah, built I've into Yeah, I've even this. blocked where Vince can interrupt. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, a lot of people are saying, Gersh, Vince, the show's a little too loosey-goosey. And when you get a guest like Jonathan Safran Foer, why don't you write something out? Why don't you write it out so people know who he is, what his stature is, and then, then you can jump into the loosey-goosey questions about, you know, the American male and, and why Gersh is such a loser. We'll get to that. But first, I would say this. If there is a more devastating portrayal of the dissolution of marriage than Gersh Kuntzman's real life, it is to be found in Jonathan Safran Foer's great new book, Here I Am. Now, Brooklyn paper readers need no introduction to Foer, who has been dubbed by the paper on repeated occasions as, quote, the greatest writer of his generation. Foer is, of course, the author of acclaimed novels, Everything is Illuminated and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, and the controversial nonfiction Eating Animals, which I have to say left a bit of a craw in my mouth because I eat animals and I don't always like a reminder of how bad that is. Yeah, I read, I started reading it because you gave it to me. Of course you're, I did. You're always pushing uh, Jonathan stuff on me, which is fine. Uh, and I started going through it, but I had to stop at some point because, you know, I, I like to eat cows. He eats cows. Ringing, and pigs for that. A ringing endorsement of the book. There, there you go. go. Anyway, Foer's new book, though, is a true delight. A comic novel about Jacob and Julia Block who might as well be named Gersh Kuntzman and Julie Rosenberg for how accurately Forward depicts the end of my marriage. The book also touches on such themes as Jews, parenting, post-marriage dating, and the inevitable question of why American men are, frankly, pussies. Wait a second. Are you saying Jews is a theme? Jews is no question a theme. Well, that's a theme. Well, I mean, we're not a race, and we're, we're just, we're not a culture. What are we, Jonathan? What are we? Jews, what are we? A people. We're a people. Okay. Well, so, not a a theme. so not a theme. Well, I was really focusing on the pussies thing, but we're going to get to that. Because Vince, as you know, Jonathan, is not only a handsome man, but an Italian-American. I call him the Italian stallion for more, more than one reason. Yeah. Anyway, so of course we are excited to have literary, literary lion and future Nobel Prize winner Jonathan Safran Farr with us today. Hello, Jonathan. Thank you. Hello. Now, I, I always refer to you as a future Nobel Prize winner, but have you won a Pulitzer yet? I, I haven't won a lot. I've won less than you think. Well, it's, it's all a matter of time because you're going to keep writing, right? Uh, I'm gonna keep trying. Well, you're not one. Of, no, seriously, you're not one of those um, Philip Roth guys who 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 retires. Um, I God, I hope I am. Okay, let's <laughs> hold that thought. I think the phone is ringing. Is that a call in for Jonathan Safran Foer? It's Dick Ziggin calling in. All right, Jonathan Safran Foer is here. You know the novelist, Dick Jonathan Safran Foer. No, I don't. I'm sorry. Well, our, Dick, I've never heard of you, so it's okay. What there you go. It's a mutual disadmiration society. Anyway. I'm very happy Dick Ziggin called. Dick, you're on the air live with Gersh Kuntzman, Vince DiMasselli, and, of course, future Nobel Prize winner Jonathan Safran Foer. How are you, Dick? Self-obsessed, of course. Okay. Now, we wanted to have Dick on the show, and Jonathan is Jonathan's going to jump in, too. Dick, everyone is talking about Coney Island's secession. It's a movement. It's happening. Um, I was joking around on Twitter a couple of days ago about the New England secession movement. Hmm. And that reminded me of Key West trying to become the Koch Republic. And then people were talking about Emperor Norton, who wanted um, a separate kingdom of San Francisco. And that Vermont originally was a rogue independent country. Um, East Coast expatriates need a place to move to. And Paris, where Hemingway and Gertrude Stein went, are too far away. Um, If Coney Island becomes an independent nation, 
If Coney Island leaves the United States of America, I predict it will become more densely populated than Monte Carlo. Would you have it physically separated from the mainland like it once was, Dick? Yes, so we need to make Coney Island an island again. We're not going to build the wall. We're going to dig a moat and restore Coney Island. Who's going to pay for that moat? Well, um, I have a secret plan Mm. that I'm not quite ready to reveal yet to fund all of this, to make it happen, to dig the moat, and most especially and seriously, to solve every parking and traffic problem that Coney Island has, and I'm going to make the hotels pay for it. Wow. wow. Now, it's very interesting you bought Coney Island to secede. How, how did Coney Island vote in the last presidential election? I'm assuming very heavily for Hillary? Well, I'm permanently unelected, so elections don't really matter. I'm not that concerned with it. Uh, Having been an unelected mayor, I'm looking forward to being an unelected emperor. Wait, have you already appointed yourself as the emperor of Coney Island? What's your title, sir? The unelected emperor right. of Coney Island. Well, I, I was curious what, what Coney Island, if Coney Island became its, its, its own nation, what would its chief export be? I'm thinking like funnel cake and disappointment. Um, hot dogs. Come on, do your research if you're going to be much no, that's not an export. That's that's a that's a domestic product. Export. Um, smiles. The smiles. funny face. The funny. The funny face. No, that, that is out there. I've seen it in Jersey already. Now we got Jonathan Safran forward here, who, because he's a novelist, has a laser-like focus on the metaphor, the larger metaphor. So, Jonathan, go. What's the larger metaphor here? Uh, for Coney Island. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm I'm stuck on the hot dog. <laughs> There's no question about it. It's a delicious hot dog. But Jonathan, as a novelist, if Coney Island were to secede, it becomes like you had a novel once, or at least a long chapter of another novel about the uh, Manhattan being its own country, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the Sixth Borough. The Sixth Borough. The yeah. Forgotten Sixth Borough. Yeah. So you, you've have, you have experience with this whole secession thing. Um, I think, listen, I wasn't even aware that Coney Island still existed at all, much less that it was still a part of New York City, New York State, or America. But um, secession sounds like a fantastic idea. Dick, he just threw the gauntlet down. He said you weren't doing your job well enough to promote Coney Island no, as its I, own nation. That, that was a joke. I actually well, take my kids to Coney Island all the time. Um, a troll, <laughs> probably a native of Queens, <laughs> and <laughs> becoming our own nation gives us the opportunity uh, to issue or not issue visas, mm. and if you are a Queens native, there will be a I mean, yes. I'm even worse. I'm a D.C. native. Yeah, that's right. We, oh, that's extreme vetting with, with waterboarding, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> and I'm a vegetarian to make it even worse. Yeah, do you even, uh, is there, are there any vegetarian options in Coney Island? Like, if I'm a vegetarian, is there anything to eat there? Jonathan would know this. Pierogies. Pierogies. Pierogies? The bun. The bun. The <laughs> pizza. Of course, pizza. That's right. That's right. There's a Grimaldi's there, isn't there? That's right. Mm, yeah, Cardulos. Cardulos. No, 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 no. There's a, there's, is there there's a there Grimaldi's in Coney Dick, Island? Dick, is there a Grimaldi's in Coney? Yes, there is a Grimaldi's right across the street from my uh, headquarters, City Hall. So as we've always done on this show, common ground. we got a DC-based, D.C. native novelist and Dick Ziggin, one of the greatest American heroes in terms of the artistic and Coney Island community, coming together over pizza. Yeah. As the emperor of Coney Island, will you bring back the rabbits for which it's named? The Rapids of Coney Island? Yeah, yeah, the Rapids. It's named Coney Island for a reason, oh, Dick. You should Rapids, know that. Without yes. question. Uh, there's a number of restoration projects. Um, 
I'm in favor of, for instance, the original name of Seagate was Norton's Point, mm. and I think it's time we erect a statue to Art Carney at the entrance. And mm. we got to tear down that wall at Seagate. Tear down that wall, Mr. Gorbachev. Nobody gets the reference. I get Jonathan, it. Jonathan, you get the reference. I do. Okay, thank it, you. I don't I think Dick did. Dick, are you taking down the wall in Seagate? Are you going to reintroduce it to the rest of Coney Island? We're taking it down, and we're bringing back rabbits, too. Right. This is fantastic. we got to get out. Dick, I just want you to know, when I was discussing this segment with Vince before, I was dictating an email to him using Siri, and I said, Coney secession, and Siri translated that to ceaseless John. I have no idea why. But I love that guy, Ceaseless John. He's awesome. I like that, and it's discoveries like that which reinforce how good an idea it is that I want you as my press spokesman. There is no question. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Dick. I would leave the Daily News for half pay to spend my life hanging out with you and, and promoting Coney, and we'll do some plays on the side. You know what I mean? Well, since we can't even afford half pay, can't we damn uh, the conflicts of interest, let you keep your job and still work for me? Yes, we can do that. We can do that. All I right, like Dick, Dick Ziggin, we got to get out. Big fan. My resume is on its way to you. The check is in the mail. I, I'm just throwing out cliches. So Vince, you got so, anything else? So, so on and so forth. All right, Dick. I fired Gershaw, who I've yet to hire 15 minutes ago, but I take it all back. Oh, there, there you go. go. There you go. Right. Dick Ziggin, ladies and gentlemen, great man of Coney Island, the future emperor of an independent Coney Island, not even USA, Coney Island, comma, world. Coney Island, comma, world. Coney Island, nation. Visas now, um, a small fee plus my secret plan to make the hotels pay for everything of the nation of Coney Island is a reality. There, there it is. There you go. It's going to happen. All right, we've got to hang up. We've got to let him go. Dick Ziggin, thank you for calling. Thank you. Thank you, people. I tell you, I love that guy. Now, he's Jonathan, got, he's got his finger on the pulse of of American politics. There's no question about it. Jonathan. Now you finally have heard from Dick Ziggin. Love, hate. Where are you with him now? I think I like him strongly. Yeah, you like him strongly. All uh, right. What what does he what does he do in life? So he runs Coney Island USA, which is the foremost nonprofit arts center and historical kind of repository out there. Single-handedly responsible for ostensibly the saving of Coney Island and the he moved into Coney in the 70s and he brought back the sideshow by the seashore mm -hmm. and that was his that was his big deal and he was like a sword swallower and and the uh, and the freaks and all that stuff so and then and since then he's just uh, you know he's he's just grabbed it by the balls and and just ran with well, it well he he brought the hipsters back to Coney in, uh, during the dark ages of uh, of development over there anyway we got to get out very charming guy yes. he's a wonderful guy Jonathan Safran Foer we read the whole introduction I'm not going to repeat it if you're, if you're just tuning in, i got Jonathan Safran Foer on my right. I've got, in my near right, a handsome man, Vince DiMaselli, the co-host of Brooklyn Paper Radio, live, as you know, from downtown Brooklyn, America's downtown. I'm going to start off with a tough question, Jonathan, because you're a novelist. Obviously, you and I are bus just a pair of divorced Jewish writers. Now, you're a successful writer, and I'm a hack. But sure. I thought it devastatingly accurate that the breakup of the marriage in your book, Jacob and Julia, featured just a single argument because the relationship dissolved over so many years. So I'm going to ask you the tough questions. What drives people apart? What drives, and I'm not talking about your personal experience because I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about my personal experience. What destroyed my marriage? Well, I wasn't present as often yeah. as I, I read your book. You were been. there. You yeah. were there. I read your book. Uh, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Hmm. So I, I don't know, but you probably do. And uh. <laughs> Well, let me set you up a little better. There are conversations in your book 
that happened in my kitchen. Were you there? <laughs> you must have been there. No, uh, but I'm talking about the idea that in the book. They don't fight. They're not, they're not arguing. But the marriage just kind of just falls apart. And I think, my theory is, you think in the book, Julia and Jacob break up because of the kids. True or false? I think that, uh, you know, the, the sort of like hard question is not exactly what happened that was a strain, but mm. why did they not work on it in a yeah. different way? Yeah. Um, George Harrison, the Beatle, his wife, his widow, was asked, um, how did you guys stay married for 50 years? And she said, by not getting divorced. <laughs> and I think what distinguishes my impression, you know, what do I really know, but my impression just from anecdotally, and now that the book is out, you can imagine how many people want to talk to me about um, exactly this. Yes. My impression is that um, couples staying together or not staying together doesn't exactly correspond to the challenges, but but how they, how they um, approach them and mm-hmm. whether... You know, breaking up is an option on the table or whether it's not an option on the table. And if it is, I think a lot of people take it. And if it's not, then all the other options have something to do with working. You mean you mean temperamentally. If someone's temperamentally suited to the idea of breaking up being an option in marriage, that, that puts it on the table. Yeah. I mean, don't, you know, don't, you must know couples who seem like terribly fitted for each other. Yeah, I was and, one of them, Jonathan. But, I was one but of they them. make it work. Oh, terribly, know. terribly fitted. Yeah. Oh, I was no, no. We were suited. Yeah, you were taking that word the wrong way. Yeah, I took that the wrong way. So and, you're and, saying, and then there are, there are couples who seem perfect, and they can't make it work. So it's a mystery to me. It's a mystery to everybody. But um, this particular couple in this book, um, their problem is that over time, and they become better and better at interacting in a certain way, like in a kind of domestic, running the mm-hmm. business of a family kind of way, and worse at um, a different kind of communicating that has to do with, you know, making themselves vulnerable emotionally, sexually. Um, they start to measure and withhold. And it's like a little tiny thing at a time. Like, um, you know, having, having a difficult conversation in the evening, they wake up the next morning, she just pours one cup of coffee instead of two. Mm-hmm. He notices it. He thinks, okay, maybe I'll keep the section of the paper that I prefer, which I normally give to her. She notices it, but it's all plausibly deniable. Like, well, I didn't pour two cups of coffee because I was down a little early. And, well, I was reading this article in the paper, and that's not why I handed it to you. And the, the, It's like a chess match is initiated, and the, the board over time just expands until it takes up all of life. See, see I, I have to be honest with you, Vincent and Jonathan, I didn't have that. I didn't have that kind of – it wasn't that kind of passive-aggressive thing. For me, just because I'll talk about my divorce. That's what I do. For me, it was just the loss of sexual intimacy. And, 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 I, and it, that started with the kids. And I got to say, I'm going back to your book. You have a line that basically devastated me. And it was Jacob's wish. This is late in the book. And you know, you wrote it. I'm going to quote you to you. <laughs> Jacob's wish. It's circular. Jacob's wish was to have learned his life lessons before it was too late to apply them. And in my case, uh, to me, that, that was a message of divorce. And parenting, too. Jacob was overwhelmed by the terror that he managed to ruin the three most beautiful human beings on the planet. Or a throwaway line. You may think, I, you, I don't think it's a throwaway line. You do. People shouldn't be allowed to get married until it's too late to have kids. So is that where the intimacy for Jacob and Julia went? Did it just disappear once they had kids? I don't think so because, no. it, you know, it changes life. It changes the dynamic. But it's nothing. There are plenty of people who get over that, you know, or who adjust to that or who find ways to correct bad habits. Mm. I think it's a very convenient thing to 
to a convenient place to lay blame. All right, you you did that. You just I mean, threw it, it take, at me. It takes it off of one's own shoulders, and you say, "Well, this was good. I could, how could we have been expected to do this when mm-hmm. we were so distracted by that?" And I don't I don't think it's true. Wow, Vince, do you think he just basically said that I was blaming the wrong thing for my marriage? Yeah, you need to blame yourself, Kirsch. Is that true, Jonathan? Again, I wasn't there as often as I should have been. But, uh, Why weren't you there for Gersh? <laughs> no, no, no. You wrote this whole book about him. <laughs> no, but hold on. In all seriousness, he's totally right. Obviously, I'm to blame. We know I'm to blame, but not in the, not in the sexual arena. Not in the bedroom, my friend. Because I was there, present, ready, and yes, exhausted by the fact that I had two kids. Yes, exhausted, but ready. Mm-hmm. Well, for the record, I always get my wife a cup of coffee in the morning, despite the fact yeah. That it reminds me of 9-11 every morning because when I found out the planes hit the building, I was literally handing my wife a cup of coffee. Wow. Wow. Really? So, so coffee reminds you of 9-11? Every morning. Hmm. How did you find out? Uh, I was listening to 1010 Wins. <laughs> I thought you were going to find out about the coffee. How did they first announce it? Do you remember? I was living on LaQueer Street in uh, Carroll Gardens. and God, is that how you say it? Yeah, LaQueer. I don't think I that's true, that. by the way. It's not Lucre. Okay. Right? Okay. Anyway, I live there. Okay. Okay? And it's Kosciuszko. All right. All right. That's fine. That's, that's not fine. correct. Either. I that, that one you're, I know is not correct. Listen, if Vince, Vince, you're moving into asshole territory right I'm now. I'm just, just telling stick, you. Stay with the 9-11 story because it's very compelling. If traffic reports in the 1980s taught me anything, it's Kosciuszko. Okay. okay? Go. go. So Kosciuszko. All right. Thanks, Johnny. Hey, Johnny. All right. Go, Vince. So the fact is I'm, si- I'm sitting there. I make the coffee. 1010 wins is on because that's what we listen to in the morning. And they say a plane has just hit the World Trade Center. I lived on LaQueer Street. I could literally go onto the roof and see the World Trade Center. As a matter of fact, that weekend I was on the roof pointing an antenna, a television antenna, at the World Trade Center so I could watch television because I didn't have cable at the time. Right? So I handed the cup of coffee and I said, oh, I'm going to go up to the roof and take a look. And she's like, what are you talking about? I said, they just said a plane hit the building. So I run up to the roof. And I'm looking at the roof, and I grab her. I, I yell down. I says, "Lee, you got to come up here. You got to see this." And she's like, "What?" I says, "No, you got to see this. It's not a small plane. Something hit the building, and it it was big. There's a tremendous fire." And she's like, "So now she starts climbing up the, uh, tries to climb up the fire escape to get onto the roof, and she's kind of slipping because she's she, wearing. She was pregnant at that point, was she? She not? was not. No. Okay. She was wearing. Uh, she was wearing like flip flops, you know, slippers or something. And she's like, "I can't do it. I can't come up." I says, "All right, go back down." And as she's going back down. The uh, the ladder, I look up, and at this point, I'm looking towards Staten Island and, like, the uh, Statue of Liberty. Yeah, because that's I where see, all the action's happening. I see the second plane. No. And she's going down, and I'm looking up, and I says, Lise, there's another plane. There's another plane. It's a big fucking jet. You, and had, was, you had time to say that in between seeing it and when it hit? It was oh, like yeah. in slow motion. And I watched the plane go across. I watched. I thought it was going to hit the Statue of Liberty. It didn't. And I watched it go across, across, across. And then it hit the build. It. I watched it tilt its wings. It mm, hit the mm, building. Mm. I get chills just thinking about it. It hit the building, and I saw the explosion. Then I heard the explosion, mm. and then I felt the explosion. Like, because mm-hmm. we're close. And that was... And I went downstairs, and I said, shut the windows, close the doors. Oh, and take a shower. Because yeah. the first thing I do in a... Crisis. Crisis is take a shower. Because yeah. you never know when you're going to have water again. That's that's can, a nice... Can, can you give an example of another time in a crisis when you've taken a shower? Oh, uh, yeah. We, was actually, with my wife, we're in um, Manhattan, and someone's screaming that there's a fire in the building. There's a fire in the building. And I come downstairs. Look, we were on the fourth floor walk-up. I come downstairs, and I see the smoke, but it didn't feel like smoke. It didn't smell like smoke. But there was lots of, uh, there was lots of it. And I went upstairs to my wife, and I said, look, there's a fire. Take a shower. 
because we got to get to work. Do we want to perish inside this building? Because <laughs> yeah, we got to get to work, and the firemen are going to come, and we're not going to be able to get out of this building. <laughs> we'll get oh, back wow. into the building. So but she did. I'm, she I'm, took I'm, a shower. I'm surprised evolution hasn't weeded you out yet. Yeah, no, 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 no question about it. It's and trying, then, Jonathan. And, it's trying. And then, <laughs> and then the firemen came, and guess what? They said steam, steam. It was steam. Every, every just so you know, Jonathan. Every time we do a show, Vince usually opens with some hapless story. A couple of weeks ago, a pair tried to kill him, and he. Took another bite of the pear, and the pear tried to kill him again, and he finished the pear, and he showed that pear who's boss. That's right. But the funny thing about, and it's not funny, but the funny thing about Vince's 9-11 story is it was very literary. I don't know if you noticed that, Jonathan. I was getting goosebumps. Yeah. You turned 9-11 into a great novel. Vince didn't do shit with that story. What are you talking about? I just made it a great radio yeah, play. Yeah, you made it a great radio. No, extremely loud and incredibly close. Your, your prior novel, Jonathan... Very much pilloried in the press. I know you got bad reviews. Who gives a shit? I love that book. I thought that book was excellent. Just throwing that out there. Nicely put. Thank you. <laughs> I think Vince has got a question. No, I don't. Just keep, continue, because right. I haven't read the question you no, wrote okay. for me. Okay, well, I'm trying to do an NPR-style interview. All right, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's take a quick break. You got a minute, Jonathan? We I do got a need to Let's do give that. Me some, give me some commercial music, Johnny, because I want to ask Jonathan Saffron for an important question. Jonathan, look. When was the last time you saw a quality dentist who was truly affordable? You can answer. Um, well, let's see here. I'm 39. I would say it was about half my life ago. Okay, well, that's the answer that people give. It's been too long to remember. And that's the time to go to Dr. Joseph Lichter. You want to know why? Lichter's state-of-the-art dentistry is offered at extremely reasonable prices. And Vince has just handed me the new prices. That's right, new price list. Zoom Bleach Whitening System, $395. Even lower than before. Implants. One, uh, 1250 He's Ooh. practically giving it all away. Invisalign, you know, that's that braces that go behind your teeth. $4,000, usually 5000 in Manhattan. Veneer special, seven fifty per veneer. Shop around, get the lowest prices you can find. He'll beat them. He will. Joseph Lichter, DDS, is 718-339-7878. Oh, he's got a new slogan. Your smile is our priority. That's Joseph Lichter, 1420 Avenue P in Brooklyn, between East 14th and 15th. Again, 718-339-7878. Seven, eight. Atlas Steakhouse, as you know, offers you a unique dining experience. First, you choose your steak. Every cut is aged to tender perfection on site. Then you pair it with the vintage from their extensive wine list or with one of Atlas Steakhouse's signature cocktails. You can enjoy a succulent appetizer as their master chef crafts your choice cut the way you desire. How do you like your steak, Gersh? I like it medium rare. Okay. Now Jonathan, Jonathan, I won't ask you. He's a vegetarian. I'm not going I was going to say, or better still, go to a dentist who doesn't have... Uh, Bargain basement prices and don't eat steak. Oh, no, no, no. They, the, the prices are, are insane. They're great. <laughs> he's a great dentist. Now, as far as steak goes, I know you're a vegetarian, and I've, I've quibbled with you in the past over that. But if you go to Atlas Steak, it's a good steak. Just and you FYI. Can, and you can always have a salad. And when your main course arrives, you will understand why at Atlas Steakhouse, they always offer you a cut above the rest. Atlas Steakhouse, 943 Coney Allen Avenue. Visit them online at atlassteak.com. So we've got another, another question for Jonathan. Jonathan, you know, you're not getting any younger. True? False? Um, no, I'm not getting any younger. By definition, you're not getting any younger. And you're going to turn 65, 70 at some point. Hopefully. Hopefully. But when you get there, you're going to start breaking down. It happens to everybody, Jonathan. You're a great-looking guy, and you're obviously in very good shape. But you're going to break down, and that's when you're going to call Village Care Max. Here's why. Village Care Max doesn't want to put you in a nursing home like uh, your character did with or was going to do with the great-granddad. In, in Here I Am. No, we don't want to put you in a nursing home. We want to get you a Medicaid-managed long-term plan that helps you stay at home and in your community for as long as you can. Now, I always say in your community, having sex, going to movies, going to dinner, 
coming home at the end of the night and sleeping. They get a long-term care professional to work with your doctor. They get you the best medicine. They, they make your appointments. They do everything. All you got to do is call 800-469-6292 or village, ver village them or visit them in the village because it takes a village care max <laughs> to raise this commercial apparently <laughs> villagecaremax.org village care max live the life you want to live jonathan even as you're aging aging gosh valentine's day is around the corner it is right around the corner and what's the best thing that a lot of times people send flowers they send chocolates you know what you could send to your girlfriend this year D don't ask jonathan i'm gonna no. send my girlfriend meat that's right you're gonna send her a steak <laughs> from atlas meat market because we have the craziest advertisers. We got the dentist, we got two meat markets, and we got the old age home. I mean, Jonathan, Jonathan. They, they, they all go together in a funny way. It does. It, it all works. Go. Atlas Meat Market offers you the finest cuts of veal, of chicken. No pork. No pork. It is halal. It is halal. Right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing. And you can just call them up, order it, they'll deliver it right to your door. And what else will they do? They will ship anywhere in, on God's green earth. Really? God's green earth? God's green earth. Sounds like my dog. Oh, wait, did you say ship? <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Atlas Meat Market has it all, and at prices that can't be beat. Atlas Meat Market is at 387 Avenue X in uh, beautiful Brooklyn, New York. All right, you know, you can give them a call at 347-915-2000. They're open today. They're open right now, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Give them a call. All right, Johnny, kill the music. Jonathan, I, I have to apologize. You've got great teeth, so you don't need a dentist like Joseph Lichter. You don't eat meat, so you don't need Atlas Meat Market or Atlas Steakhouse. And frankly, you're a great-looking man who obviously is never going to age, so you don't need VillageCareMax.org. However, however, we have to pay some bills so we can talk to literary lions like yourself. If you're just joining us, phone number to call in is 718-260-4502, and you can talk to future Nobel Prize winner, Jonathan Safran Forward. Jonathan, were you upset that Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize this year for literature? I didn't give it a hell of a lot of thought, to be honest. Well, you um, like Dylan. You're a Dylan fan. Um, is that so? I was asking. Oh, you have a funny way of asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> just, just like presenting ads. Um, yeah, sure, I'm a Dylan fan. And I, you know, I suppose I was initially a little bit um, curious about this election mm. because there had been a, an understanding of what the award was, which was something for um, people like you. Literary writers, novelists, and poets, and he's, he's not really either of the two. But as I sat with it, I grew to really like the idea. I mean, there's no question you're up for that award next year. Am I right? Um, you know, we're all up for it every year. No, no, I'm not. No. You got to apply for you're, that? You're, you're about as up for it as I am. No, totally disagree. My, my semi-autobiographical self-indulgent first novel, which was called Hitler Would Have Double Parked, true story, Jonathan, was never published and pales by such comparison to your work. And I'm not saying that because you're here and I'm fawning because I'm an asshole. No. Y you have a it way. It's that bad. No. <laughs> no, it's actually pretty good, I might add. <laughs> no, but the point is you have a way of expressing these these really painful things. Like I, like I mentioned before, like um, some of the lines in your book, even down to the fact at the end of your book, the divorced writer guy is flirting with women at Ikea. I did that. I did that. Wow. <laughs> That's opening up a vein, my that friend. Listen, Vince has got a question. Gersh is obviously obsessed with the fact that uh, Jewish American men in your book are such wimps, uh, especially when compared with their macho Israeli cousins. So I ask you, and I'm asking you this not because it's written down in front of me, but because I really care. Why would you depict Gersh that way? 
you guys protest too much. All, all of your questions, you say, uh, it's not what I think. I'm not asking this because of this. Okay. Well, but he asked a good question, Jonathan. Why did I depict? Yeah, pick Gersh that way. Why do you think I'm such an American Jewish wimp? Uh, because you act that way. I'm not exactly sure how to answer that. I think that um, Jacob, mm. the character that you feel is inspired by you. No question about it. Um, lived it. Has a very difficult time closing the distance between how he thinks things should be mm-hmm. and how they are. And yeah. How he thinks he should be, how he imagined himself being, how he imagined his marriage being, his relationship with his kids, his professional life, his friendships, all of this. As he's grown older, he's become more aware of this distance. And um, he doesn't know how to close it. He doesn't know how to refine ambition. He doesn't know how to speak up for himself. He doesn't know how to take what is already there and um, everybody around him pays the price for it. But that's what I'm talking about. It's not that he's a wimp, but it is that gap, uh, that notion of I don't know, I do I do it and you mentioned this in your book, I do it by thinking like things are unfair, like why did that guy get that job and I didn't get that, that's unfair. you got to banish unfair and I think you talk about that a little in the book but where does that gap come from? In other words, Jacob in the book is very successful, now granted he's a it sounds like he's a sitcom writer and his father thinks he could write deeper, more important work, and he does. But why does he why does he feel bad about who he is? Why can't he live honestly with himself? Well, I think there's a lot of forces acting on him and acting on all of us to um, to come to the conclusion that things are unfair. And I think part of what we saw in the election actually was an expression of that feeling. You know, the American dream itself is this idea that we will how how would you define the american dream well i living living the way you want to live honestly and openly banishing inhibition and guilt for being who you want to be i thought it was just owning owning your own house yeah. i think it's maybe closer to the latter really and, and really I, I think that most people think of the american dream as doing better than your parents no no that's materialistic come on jonathan you're a novelist you don't believe the, that the american dream the american dream all right so what's the jonathan safran forward dream that's another story. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I think you hint at it in the book because at the end of the no, book. No, no, no. I, 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 yes, I do hint at it in the book, and it, and it is quite different. My only point is I think there are a lot of forces, whether it's you know the, the media or just the general political rhetoric that's guided us to think that like we should have more, that there's always right. – that, there, that we should do better than our parents, that we should have a bigger house, that the next car should be a little bit bigger and more powerful, and there isn't enough. And um, – I think I, that that's something that these characters are, in, you know, encountering. But I, I couldn't disagree with you more right now because I believe – no, I, I agree with you, but I couldn't disagree more with your conclusion. I believe the easiest thing – It's a the, circular disagreement. The true embodiment of the American dream is living as who we are, living honestly. In fact, in the book, the character Jacob Block, after his divorce – I mean, he has a fucking fantastic post-divorce life. He meets women – I mean, it's not a lot of depicted in there, but he talks about living honestly. And the idea is he wishes he could live honestly with this women, these women. What is he thinking honestly? Meaning, can we, just, can we just let me be me? Is that the idea? I think so. I think he imagines a kind of integrated life where he isn't like uh, one person with his kids, one person mm-hmm. in his profession, mm-hmm. one person in relationships. One. But, um, you know, the title of the book, Here I Am, mm-hmm. refers to a passage in Genesis where um, to make a kind of – do it. Short story, very short. Do it. You know, God says to Abraham, I need you to sacrifice your son. Abraham says, here I am, unconditionally, without reservations. And then a few sentences later, when he's leading his son up Mount Moriah to, to sacrifice him, and Isaac catches sort of the scent of something weird going on here, 
and he says, my father, and Abraham, and uh, um, Abraham says to him, here I am. And it's a paradoxical moment because you cannot be fully present for a God who wants you to kill your son while being fully present for your son who doesn't want to be killed. And, you know, most of your listeners haven't experienced a paradox quite like that, but they've probably experienced their own versions of what it means to be fragmented or not, not whole, um, to, to have competing identities. You know, everybody knows the competing identities of everyone who has kids mm-hmm. does of um, being a parent and being an individual in the right. world. Right. Is that universal? I, I thought it was only me. I, I would think it's universal. <laughs> it pretty much has to be universal just given what is asked of you as, you know, in these different identities. Yeah, but then what, where, what, if, what has to give? You know the expression, I'm sure you've heard this expression, something's got to give. What has to give? Is it my individuality, Jonathan, that has to give? Probably everything has to give a little bit and everything borrows a little bit. Oh. There's no easy answers, Johnny. <laughs> I thought that was, that's pretty basic, Rich. I wanted the easy answer, Jonathan. I, I thought that was the easy answer. No, the answer you wanted was everything else has to uh, give to me. To you. Yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted. Jonathan, <laughs> is that realistic? Is it realistic? Well, you've experienced the outcomes of your own yes. choices. Yes. My last girlfriend, t- truth be told, Vince knows this, literally said, that's not realistic. And that was it. That was it, Jonathan. Yeah, it's over. It was over, Johnny. What, what did she say that in response in, to? In response to the idea of, like, I want to live honestly. I don't want to be a fragmented human being. I want to be Gersh Kuntzman, man and persona and parent and sexual partner and guy who just plays hockey on the weekend. Is it, is it pointed out to you many times every single day how funny your last name is? <laughs> and, and I want to be the guy who can make fun of my name and receive being made fun of about my name. But yes, it's pointed mo- out modern every... Modern American male Gersh Kuntzman. I mean, but is that, unreal- is that unrealistic? Like a, like a pornographic Muppet. Yeah. Is that unrealistic? Yes. We've l- we learned it. Yes. It's unrealistic to think that you can have an inflexible identity that never has to give or take. It never has to make compromises or sacrifices oh. or... No, I'm not talking about compromise. Jonathan, you were a parent. You were married. Every, we make sacrifices and, and compromises. That's like, that's like drinking our coffee in the morning. You know that. I'm talking more about I want to be loved for who I am. And the who I am part is not the parent making compromises. It's not the guy at, at the office making compromises. It's just Gersh Kuntzman living life in full, honestly, as Jacob Block says in the book. Is that unrealistic? Um, you know, I ha- Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine if it is. I just want to know. I've only been with you for half an hour. I um, No, I don't think it's unrealistic. Obviously, it's not. And um, But it might take some time. Well, she's out there is what you're saying. She's out there. She might be out there. She might not. You have a dog? <laughs> <laughs> they always say, if you want a friend in Brooklyn, get a dog. Yeah. Anyway, Vince has got another question for you. Why, why do you always do that to because me? I, I, because I've run out of things to no, say. No, I haven't. So, no, I'm Vince, just a little Vince sad, and i got to sit I got to sit with that. My I think wa- you have to think about it, and I think you need to set up like weekly chats with Jonathan I, I've to always figure wanted all that. this stuff out. I, I start charging after the first. My, I know. Jonathan, my ex-wife did say to me the other day, is I have difficulty sitting with pain. And it's true. I don't sit with pain. I go out. I have a drink with some friends. Maybe my lady friend, who I have to confess... I think likes Paul Oster a little bit more than you, but I'll I'll talk her into it. Sounds like a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Vince. Got maybe a you need to take a shower, Gersh. Maybe no that's what. It, maybe it. just go take a shower. That's probably the way to go. So how I, I got to ask you because I'm a, I'm a nuts and bolts guy. How do you end up like you know I got to get into how you actually sit down and write this book. Like where does it come from? Every reporter I have out there oh wants God. to be 
the great American novel. Every reporter. And they demand that I that I ask that question. How do you how do you actually have the fortitude and the the stamina to sit down and write a book like that? Where does it come from and how do you do it? I mean, I would love to hear the answer. Also, I, I've <laughs> you had, did uh, it. No, I've had a very hard time with it. And I have a really sitting down and working is the hardest thing about writing. And it's true of every writer that I know. I teach and I've been teaching for about 10 years, 11 years. Um, I have incredibly talented students. Every semester I teach, I think, you know, at least half of them could and should be writers out in the world, professional mm-hmm. writers. And 10 years in, only a small handful, maybe four or five, are still writing. And it's not because they're more brilliant than the others. It's because they find ways to keep returning to the desk and keep returning to the blank page, which mm-hmm. is a really singularly, um, at least frustrating experience. There's so many incentives to stop. It makes you feel self-conscious. It makes you feel stupid. Um, it can be boring. It can be isolating. It can be alienating. But what I tell them is that's the most important thing is not to you know be able to better craft a sentence or create more believable characters or a, organize a story in a way that's more suspenseful or interesting or gratifying, but just to keep returning to it. Yeah, I have a problem with character development. There is no doubt about that. Oh, pff, but that's it. why you're a great journalist. Just so you know, Jonathan, I say Vince is handsome, but he's also incredibly gifted as a journalist, but not a character guy. You well, t- what I do is I teach these kids that come into my office, and we have kids. I mean, these guys come straight out of school, and they come and work for me. That's elementary school, by the way. And I want them to just learn how to write a story, and I tell them specifically that this is not novelization. I mean, this is down and dirty. This is reporting, and journalism is different than writing uh, a novel or writing fiction or stuff like that. It's because you're you're actually out there, you're seeing things happen, you're taking notes, and then you're regurgitating it. So I think that it helps them, you know, I think it, it flexes the muscle of writing, but it's not the same muscle that you're flexing when, you, when you're going to, to do what you do so well. I so. completely agree. When I wrote Eating Animals, which was a nonfiction book, I found that um, my years of writing fiction almost didn't help. Mm-hmm. Like it was just such a completely different craft, and um, it was a, a learning process. Well, what was the what was the challenge? The the journalism of the book, or because sitting down and writing, you know how to do. Well, I think the challenge was not being free to do whatever I wanted, but being mm-hmm. constrained yep. by yep. how the world actually is, and sometimes the world doesn't make the best story. Yeah, but those are velvet handcuffs, my friend. Because I tell the reporters out there, journalism can can actually help you tell a story. I mean, you're not practiced in it, but journalism focuses you on okay, what is the essential truth and 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 what's the most important thing? And you learn that with eating animals, even though as you know, we quibbled over it. Yeah. Well, I mean look, the good and bad news is that the world is an incredibly interesting place and it's probably more interesting now than it's been in a long time. And um that's a blessing and a curse. It's a curse to live in a world that's so interesting, but it's a blessing to report on it. I mean, you know it's funny, you mentioned earlier incentives to stop writing. And number one on the list, Trump. Number two, beer, women, hockey, solitaire, 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 solitaire. Problem with solitaire, jobs, friends, you know, calling your mom and dad. So how do you how do you block all that stuff out to sit down and look at a blank page and say, I'm going to put my I'm going to put Gersh Huntsman's heart on this page. How do you do that? Uh, I guess I don't block it all out. I, yeah. I, I allow it in. And I think about I mean, it's a little like we were talking about identity before, like the give and take of different identities. So my writing identity is not actually my primary identity. It's one that's really important to me. I try to, to devote the best of myself to it, but not always. You know, I have other things in life that I care about and I want to do, some of which are not so noble as, you know, 
being a parent or citizen or teacher, but just needing like everybody does to have downtime and watch TV, go for walks, stuff like that. So it's a balance. But your primary identity is not as a writer, you're saying? I don't know that I have a primary identity. Um, I guess the reason I ask is it, it seems to me if I were to write a novel, it would have to obsess me so much that my whole being gets consumed by that and I give up all those things. Women, wine, song, hockey. It's a long day, you know? <laughs> it's Seriously, it's, it's a long day. And then the, the, in my experience, the problem is not just finding the hours but making use of the hours or even recognizing mm -hmm. the hours that are there. It's all good. I mean, this is, this is, if you're out there and you're a young writer, I mean, listen to this man. I mean, he, he's condemned my marriage, and I get that. But he's now given me some good advice about writing. Am I right? Vince, is that helping you? Uh, no, it's, it's extremely helpful. It's extremely loud Extreme, and incredibly close. It's extremely helpful. No, it, because that's the thing that I have. When, whenever I tried to sit down to write something, you know, original that was just coming straight from me, I always, like, get to the point where I'm just like, you know, I can't even write this. This is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I just stop. I have, like, so many things that I've started over the years and just never completed. But you got to just. You ever return to them? Uh, I do, and usually when I do, I'm, again, somewhat embarrassed by them. And, well, again, it's only between me and myself. Like, yeah. I'm the only person embarrassing me. I mean, they're locked. You can't get into them. you got to know the password. Yeah. Yeah. Jonathan, you would be doing Brooklyn Paper readers a great service if you would encourage Vince to, at the very least, continue to write his column, which we've called My Column Vinny. I mean, that's a great name for a column, right? Vince, at the very <laughs> least, you should continue your column, My Column. Finney. There, there you go. go. See? See? That, that's encouragement. I ha I got to sit down every week to do it, and that's the that's the problem. Like I have enough. I have a problem getting to the gym, so it makes it extremely difficult for me to. But you know what? Sit like down. people, a lot of people have a problem getting to the gym. Nobody has a problem checking email. Nobody has yeah. a problem watching streaming TV. Like we have a problem with things that are that are hard. Or you that see what he did else. there, Vince? He, yeah. Now, so then, how do we get past that? How, you go to the gym because you look great. You go to the gym? <laughs> no. Okay, no. you don't go. So you've you've neglected the gym in favor of your novelist. I fast. You fast. He he's, he never eats. It, this guy. It's never. easier. Well, I don't know. We got to get out because, as you know, Jonathan uh, has got some appointment. I don't I know. Do. How, I don't know who schedules an appointment, but he's got to walk about twenty minutes. So we're gonna end the show a little early. But last question. I got. We got to do another commercial break. I, we will. No, we're gonna let him go though. But Jonathan, I got to let him go. More, I'm having more, so much fun. More meat purveyors in the city. Well, we're gonna let you go before we talk about meat, because you know, as you know, he's a vegetarian. But last question, and this is the toughest one of all, and I'm gonna ask it. Late in the book. Now, remember, we're talking to Jonathan Safran Foer about his new book, Here I Am. Fantastic book. His third novel, it's well, third novel that I know about. Fantastic book. Probably the best of your three, although extremely, extremely loud and incredibly close, which was badly reviewed. I loved. And, of course, Everything is Illuminated is maybe the greatest book uh, of the, from, like, 1975 to 2000. Well, I'm a few chapters into the new book. I got to say, I'm a few chapters in, and I do enjoy it. But it, with the feeling I'm getting from it's the characters. It's only been six months. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the feeling I'm getting from the characters is they think that they're smarter than everybody else. They are. And they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna make this work somehow. Very early in the book. I see that kind of foreshadowing going. I'm going to see where it goes from there. But I don't want to. Spoiler alert. They're not going to make it work. Oh, okay. So, Jonathan, last question because I know you got to go. Look, we're talking about marriage. But the book is – it talks about Israel, destruction of the temple, the whole bit. But the book is ostensibly about the dissolution of a great Brooklyn marriage, like Gersh Kunstman's. Quote in the book towards the end. All those years – talking about years of marriage – felt worthwhile while they were happening, but only a few months on the other side of them, and they were a gigantic waste of time. Is that really how you feel about my marriage? Because that's well, how I feel. It's not at all how the character feels. I mean, it's it's he, it takes him a while to confront his own sadness. Yeah. And to 
be willing to engage with the possibility that it was his fault or partially his mm-hmm, fault mm-hmm. that he had that thing that he wanted and he couldn't recognize it. Um, he's a sad character. He really is. But I think the book leaves him in a place that is has some element of hope or at Definitely. least self-realization. <clears throat> um, it's not corny. He's not sort no. of about to step off into a next and better life. But the final words of the book are, I'm ready. Mm-hmm. And it's in it's in a tragic context. It's not. It's not. I'm not giving it no spoiler. No, no spoiler alert. Uh, not at all. In fact, the, the context is extremely specific and not specific to his, you know, yeah. romantic life. But I, I think that he's a very frustrating character who we want to, you know, shake by the shoulders and say, look at what you have um, accepted. I considered it a happy ending. Vince, this is not a spoiler either. But when his son comes over, his his now adult son who we've only seen in the book pretty much as a kid, comes over with Chinese food. And they and it's not even really a scene, but just the notion that his son, his adult son, would yeah. come over. It really made it, it gave me the feeling like, oh, okay, my son's going to do that. It's not going to be Chinese food, obviously. The kid doesn't eat well. But it's going to be something. He's going to come over. We're going to do something. Yeah. And that made me feel like, you know what? It's not so bad. No, he's he's um, it's not so bad. It's a good way to put it, actually. Here I am. All right, anyway, we're talking to Jonathan Saffranfar. we got to let him go, but last question. Anything you want to plug? We let our we always let our, our guests plug whatever they want to plug or talk about it. Maybe you want to talk about Trump. Maybe you want to talk about some great beet salad you had. Whatever it is, go. Well, in light of the innumerable ads for meat that we just heard, I would say that a lot of people are feeling um, frustrated with the election results mm-hmm. and not knowing what to do. I have a lot of friends who are pulling their hair out about, you know, what Trump is going to do to the environment and um, whether the Paris and Kyoto um, climate accords or climate talks are going to be ripped up. And I wouldn't have thought to say this, but in light of those advertisements, I would say the ways that we choose to eat matter more to the environment than anything this president can possibly do. And um, it's, you know, I think a lot of people are feeling quite hot with emotion, but sort of frozen in place, not knowing what the what what is possible right now and so we go out on the streets to these marches in dc new york and all over the country and world um or at the airports and um eating differently is one way to affect enormous change very easily and i understand you're sitting next to me and saying i like to eat these other things so just eat a little less he's really basically saying i'm starting with the man in the mirror in other words he's asking me to change my ways sounds like it no i'm seriously so you're saying that would actually have such a huge impact, huge, to use Donald Trump's word, on the environment. The, the things that presidents talk about is very humble redu- uh, reductions of emissions over the course of too long. There's just no way the planet's going to be saved by the kinds of things that they're talking about. Factory farm meets the number one cause of global warming, mm-hmm. greenhouse gas emissions, loss of um, deforestation, loss of biodiversity, air pollution, water pollution. If we really care about these things, we can, we can actually affect a huge well, so change. You're pres- presuming that I really care about these things. I'm presuming that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, he's made, no, but people march and we don't really know if they care about the actual thing. But so maybe that's the, that's the, that's exactly the question. There it is. Sounds like another oh, wow. great novel coming out of Jonathan Safran Foer about our own hypocrisy as liberals, as there's progressives. A, there's, there's no, there's no greater hypocrite on the air right now than me. I'm just saying this is one thing that I, that I care about and it's one easy way to make a difference. No, there's a greater hypocrite in the air, and it's me. That may be, that may be true. We've talked about that. All right, Jonathan Safran, we got to let him go. It's it's very tough for us to finish the show and let you go because I want to shake your hand. I want to hug you after the show. I'm not going to be able and to do I that. Really better go. Yeah, yeah so you got to go. Jonathan, thank you for joining us. And please, if you can hear the sound of my voice, buy Here I Am, and don't just buy it. 
read it, devour it, and know what I went through a few years ago in my marriage. Right, Jonathan? That's exactly right. There he goes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Safran Fowry. Thank gonna, you. Johnny, walk him out. Start the, start the commercial music and then walk him out, okay? There you go. Johnny's going to walk you out there, Jonathan. Thank you. Seriously. Great show. We, we, we're very casual here because Jonathan's got an appointment. Oh, we've got, we to, got, to, pay about, some, we've got to ask him about Woody Allen. Oh, yeah, you think, John, last question. Do you think Woody Allen's just phoning it in at this point? Um, I, I haven't seen a movie of this in a little while. See, there it is. So You're know. phoning it in as a fan, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> anyway, Jonathan Safran, forward leaving. We're going to pay some bills. Johnny, walk him out. I asked Jonathan this before. He's going to get older. He's going to want to stay in his home. He's going to want to go to a nursing home like the characters in his book. No, walk him out physically, John. Oh, he's on crutches. Johnny didn't even walk him out. So we let Jonathan Safran forward just walk out of the building. I know, this is terrible. All right, well, anyway, he needs Village Care Max, a Medicaid-managed long-term plan that helps him stay at home, writing his novels, going to the doctor, getting his prescriptions, making sure you get to appointments. That's what Village Care Max does, and it's under Medicaid. You don't even pay for it. Get more information by going to villagecaremax.org or calling one 800 Four six nine six two nine two. Village Care Max. Live the life. Write the novels. Have the sex you want to do. Atlas Steakhouse offers a selection of premium cuts aged on site for perfect texture and taste. Atlas Steakhouse has an extensive line li- wine list of vintage wines. Expert. <laughs> well, well said, Vince. <laughs> I didn't write this. <laughs> expertly mixed. Cl- expertly mixed classic. And signature cocktails, signature appetizers, guaranteed to stimulate your palate. Atlas Steakhouse. It's your choice cut steak crafted into a culinary masterpiece just for you. Delightful desserts, Gersh. How do you like them? I like them sweeter than the last. Each one sweeter than the last. Atlas Steakhouse, a completely unique dining experience at 943 Coney Island Avenue in up-and-coming Ditmas Park. Find them online anytime at atlassteak.com. You know, Vince, if Jonathan Safran Foer was still sitting here, I would say to him, are you looking for a dentist who provides quality care at an affordable price? You know what he'd say? Yes, I am, Gersh. Yes, I am. Well, then look no further than Dr. Joseph Lichter. He's got dentists and skilled hygienists at a state-of-the-art office in Midwood where they use the most up-to-date technology, techniques, and provide the best prices in the world. And I, do you see how slowly I read that? that I really emphasized like that. Like Let that. me read some of these new prices because Vince gave me the sheet. I Zoom, did. The Zoom whitening system, $3.95. Oh, it's a discount. Implants, $12.50. Unbelievable. Invisalign, which is that inside the mouth braces, $3,995. Yep. Veneer special, $7.50 per veneer. Nobody does it better. So you go in, you ask for a smile evaluation. They take a photo, they tell you what it could look like even before you have the operation or the procedure. So call them right now, 718 718- 339-7878. Your smile is Dr. Joseph Lichter's priority. You call him and you go to his office at 1420 Avenue P for periodontal yep. in Brooklyn. Joseph Lichter, DDS, uh, com. Atlas Meat Market, Gersh. It's the meat market. It's the market you get your meat. What kind of meat do they have? Only halal. That's it. Halal meats, including steak, chicken, and veal. It's prepared right in front of you. It's Atlas Meat Market. Now, what's the big thing about Atlas these days? They deliver anywhere in Brooklyn. You don't have time to go to the store? Don't worry about it. Just give them a call, place your order, and they'll deliver it right to your front door. And they're also doing packages now, Gersh. Packages, just like those Omaha Steak guys. I know about those guys. Hey, go on their website, get an idea, order it up, send it anywhere in the world. The world, Gersh. Atlas Meat Market 
has it all. All of it. It's a 387. <laughs> have it all. All of it. Avenue X. It's, uh, you can reach them at 347-915-2000. They are open right now. Phone lines are open as well. Give them a call. Well, that's fantastic. We've paid the bills. And I want to recap if we can, Vince. I think that Jonathan Saffron Four was... He really liked my story about 9-11 and the... And the, uh, the the uh, the plane crashing into the building. So that's that's where you're going. That was my takeaway. You're going the greatest I novelist think, of his generation liked my story. That's I think where you're ultimately going. he was more interested in what I had to say than what you had to say. Well, there's no question about that. Mm-hmm. But I was going to say Jonathan Safran Foer, the greatest novelist writer of his generation, was a very gracious guest. He did a great job. First of all, he indulged my self indulgence. Oh my god! But he totally answered it with his own novelistic approach to understanding human relations, which you don't have, Vince. And you're probably my best friend in the whole fucking world. Yep. But sometimes I come to you with my problems, and you're like, what do you want me to say, Gersh? No, so because you literally say, what do you want me to say, Gersh? I do say that. Yeah, because well, Jonathan you know, didn't say that. Because sometimes I can't be all there for you, Gersh, because I'm in a bunch of different places. No, no, no. I'm like just when I hand my wife a cup of coffee in the morning, and I'm thinking about planes crashing at the buildings okay. and thousands of people You always dying. have to go there. My point, Vince, is that you've been there. You've never not been there for me. But my point is sometimes you don't know what to say. You don't. You don't know what to say. Well, I wasn't there when you were here. I wasn't there when you were here. And I wasn't there when you were down. Oh, wait. No, I was there. Yeah, but do you, the national anthem today. We're going to do it. Sometimes you don't know what to say. But Can we end the show? Yeah, we'll do it. Anthem? Johnny's right. Now, we listen. we got three minutes. These are trying times in the United States. Vince, I don't care what side of the election you are on. It is time for America and to I'm come together. And I'm all in on Trump, baby. It's time for America to come together. And we're not going to sing God Bless America because no. of the Goodbye. mention of God. We're not going to sing America the Beautiful because of the mention of God. Mm-hmm. But we're going to sing our national anthem, a patriotic hymn that is accurate and a religious. Vince, why don't I'm you start g- us off? I'll go low, you go high. Ready? No, when you go low, I go high. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming Whose broad stripes and bright stars Through the perilous fight O'er the ramparts we watch Were so gallantly streaming And the rockets ran glad I went too high The bombs bursting in air I gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free? And the home of the everybody brave. Johnny, play us out. Play us out, Johnny. All right, great job, guys. Great show. Johnny's ready to play us out. Really nice job, Johnny. He's working. He's right on top of things. He's busy doing the. uh, There it goes. Symbols. We'll see you next week.